turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. When they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Would you join me in prayer? Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Again, by the strength and power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we consider the Lord's Supper and how it has been provided for us as a means of nourishing our faith, meeting and fellowshipping, communing with Christ, and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in that covenant that has been ratified in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you would be with our hearing, our minds, and our hearts, Lord. Let us hear, let us understand, and let us believe. I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, here in Mark chapter 14, we are given the account of our Lord Jesus Christ instituting the meal that will become known as the Lord's Supper. It is that covenant meal that we celebrate as often as we gather. We all know that meals are a regular occurrence in our lives. Whether these meals are enjoyed alone uh, or whether these meals are enjoyed with others, our bodies are constantly being nourished by these meals so that we might have the the strength and fortitude to live on. This is the way that God has designed us. We need regular nourishment in order to move forward. But there are also times when we have these meals that we partake in that are in the setting of celebration. And in these settings of celebration, there are communal connections that we have. There are meals that we enjoy through different occasions of celebrations. And you all know these meals. We might think about a rehearsal dinner, a wedding rehearsal dinner. It is that meal that takes place before the groom and the bride are united in marriage. We might think of holidays, holidays such as Thanksgiving. Or Christmas, and you know the the great feasts that are prepared at those times, the great turkeys and the hams and whatever else your family makes uh, for some of you tamales during uh, the Christmas season. But they are all all of these meals are prepared as a a means of celebrating and a means of uh, communing or fellowshipping with your family and remembering good times and also looking forward to even better times. In my family. Anytime there was a a big fight, we're all fight fans in our family, my dad would prepare a large meal for that occasion. 
my brother and I have tried to keep up that tradition. But in these meals, there's, again, nourishment taking place. There's fellowship or communion that's taking place in these meals. There's also celebration. And when we think about it, those meals that we have are often shared with those that we have commitments with. They are shared with those whom we have special and unique bonds with, our wives or our families. The Old Testament people of God also had such a meal. This meal was called the Passover meal. You are all aware of the account of the Passover, aren't you? It was that moment in the history of Israel when God came and killed the firstborn of those who did not have the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. I specifically slowed down when I said God killed, because it was not the so-called angel of death who killed the firstborn. It was God. God said, I will pass through the land. When God passes through the land, he commanded that his people, those whom he had given specific instructions to, that they were to prepare a lamb, And they were to have a supper as God passed through the land in judgment. Contrary to popular belief, while God was passing through the land, the Israelites were not cowering in fear, but rather they were celebrating. They were celebrating God's protection in a covenant meal. The Lord God commanded that the people were to feast upon a roasted lamb and celebrate. The salvation that God provided for them in the midst of judgment. This was a covenant meal that God was giving both to Israel or to Israel both for their nourishment and for their celebration. And then thereafter, generation after generation would celebrate, would celebrate the Passover meal, would celebrate that they were physically nourished. That they were spiritually saved, if you will, as they remembered God's redemption from his judgment in Egypt. They rejoiced because of his loving grace. Uh, They looked unto the eternal celebration that would be laid up for all of those who placed their faith in God alone. This annual feast was the high point of their year. As they gathered with family to celebrate the freedom of slavery or from slavery in Egypt, But it was also a meal where God continued to display his covenant promises to his people. It was a meal that fed and proclaimed a message. It was in the celebration of the Passover meal that we find recorded for us in Mark chapter 14 that the Lord Jesus Christ decides to institute the new covenant meal known as the Lord's Supper. For the Christian, the covenant promise of God is proclaimed as the participant, the one coming to the table, is fed spiritually by the body and blood of Christ. And when they do this in faith, Christ is spiritually present among them, communing with his people and nourishing them on their journey to glory. Therefore, this meal, brothers and sisters, This meal is a means of grace. This morning, with God's help, I would like to consider with you three truths concerning the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Let's begin. Number one, this meal is a meal of covenant blessing. 
This meal is a meal of covenant blessing. Let's go again to Mark chapter 14. This meal is a meal of covenant blessing. Mark chapter 14. Again, the the Lord says, whatever the Lord says, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. Verses 22, sorry. And gave it to them, and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had given it to them, and they all drank from it, or he had given it to them, and they all drank from it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. The text in Mark 14 points to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he instituted the Lord's Supper. Specifically, in pointing to the cup, the Lord says, the Lord refers to the cup as the blood of the new covenant. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, and Luke 22, 20, the Lord calls the cup the new covenant in his blood. Just like the old covenant people, we too have a feast whereby the freedom that God has granted us is proclaimed and where we are also nourished in his promise of salvation. This is wonderful. The Lord has not withheld a covenant meal from us, the people of God. He has not withheld the blessing of proclaiming the promise of God in the meal. He has not withheld meeting with his people in that meal and nourishing his people in their souls through this meal. The Lord brings each of his people into the covenant of grace, a covenant through which the merits of Christ are imputed to the sinner and the record of our sin is wash white as snow. And how is our how is our sin wash white as snow? The scriptures declare that our sins are washed white as snow through the blood of Christ. I've recently become overwhelmed with this thought of our sins being washed clean by blood. I am overwhelmed by the thought because I'm a carpet cleaner by trade. It's what I do by day. And one of the hardest stains to remove in carpet is the stain of blood. I would never go to my customer who has a stain of blood and say, the way that you would get that bloody stain out is by blood. And yet, it is by the blood of the sinless one the pure one, the only righteous one, that we, we whose sins were as scarlet are washed white as snow. And isn't that just like our God? He takes the foolish things of the world and confounds the wise. And he does all of this by his free grace. The covenant was promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And it is founded in the Trinitarian arrangement known as the Covenant of Redemption. I'd like to read to you chapter 7 of our confession, if you would bear with me for just a moment. For chapter 7 of our confession, I think, lays out perfectly this understanding of the, the covenant that God has made in order to save his people from their sin for his own glory. 
Listen closely, if you will. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Paragraph 2 of chapter 7. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of a law by his, by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. And finally, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament, and it is founded in that eternal transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all, all the posterity of, of fallen Adam that were ever saved did obtain life and blessed immor immortality, immorality, immortality. Men being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in the state of innocency. It is this very covenant that the Lord's Supper proclaims, brothers and sisters. When the believer comes to the table, the wonderful mercy of God is proclaimed. And how? Well, consider our confession again. Because the distance between God and man is so great. The distance between the creator of all and the one whom he has created is so great. We could never reach God. We could never and would never be able to attain God. We could never come to him, but he comes to us. And it pleased God to condescend, that is to stoop down to his creation. And he has stooped down to his creation by way of covenant. We have sinned against God. We are under the curse of the law. And the righteous penalty for those who have disobeyed their creator is that we are justly punished by God. And yet, while we were still sinners, God has covenanted, graciously covenanted to save us. In that intra-Trinitarian covenant of redemption. And how does God save his people? He has saved his people by offering them salvation through the only righteous one. The son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who in his doing and dying and rising and ascending has conquered sin and the grave. God be the glory. If we are to be saved. Then we must place our faith. In Christ. If we are to take part in the covenant blessings of the covenant of grace, then we are required to place our faith in Christ. But the question is, how can we place our faith in Christ? We are a corrupted people. We are a polluted people. We can do no spiritual good. How can we come to God on our own? And once again, we are amazed by the grace of God who not only requires faith, in order that we might be saved. But God also grants faith so that we might come to him and be saved. We who are unwilling to come to him, our confession says, he makes us willing. The God who requires faith is also the God who gives faith to those who are unwilling to come to him in faith. 
He makes us willing recipients of faith in order so that we might believe and be saved. And what do we believe? We believe that in the covenant that was first revealed to Adam and then further, by further steps therefore or thereafter, the covenant promise that there is salvation in the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent and bring many sons to glory. We believe in that decree before the foundation of the world that the Father made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the covenant of redemption. That the Father would give his Son a bride, and the Son would go and redeem that bride. And the Spirit would apply the Son's uh, work and redemption to the elect. It is this covenant of redemption that is worked out throughout the scriptures in the covenant of grace and revealed in the new covenant that we celebrate and proclaim each time that we come to the table of the Lord. Dear ones, you are not just coming to the table to have a piece of bread and a cup to drink. You are coming and you are proclaiming what our, what the covenant of redemption has declared and what the covenant of, of redemption has accomplished in the body and blood of the, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are proclaiming when you come to the, to the Lord's table, the covenant of grace that was promised in Genesis 3 and verse 15 and that was ratified when Christ said it is finished in John 19.30. You are proclaiming that you belong to that covenant, that you are a part of that covenant that spilled the blood of the only righteous one on your behalf. When you come to the table, you are proclaiming, and yes, we must remind ourselves that this is what we are proclaiming, but you must, must remind yourselves that you are participants, recipients of that salvation that has been promised before the foundation of the world and has been granted to you because of the grace of God. We proclaim his life. We proclaim his death. We proclaim his resurrection, his ascension. And we do all of this until he comes and brings us home to glory. It is the blessing of the covenant that the recipient once again has the opportunity to lay hold of. To take hold of that sign that is given to us at the Lord's Supper. And to proclaim that this is what we believe. And by this body and blood we are saved. 17th century English, particular Baptist, uh, Benjamin Keach said, there is a mystical conveyance or communication of all of Christ's blessed merits to our souls through faith held forth thereby and in a glorious manner received in the right participation of it. Visibly, the promise of God to save all who come by faith is announced when we come to the Lord's table. When we are holding the bread and when we are holding the cup, we are proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are proclaiming the, the covenant promise of God, the God who never changes. And it is preached to our hearts and it is preached to the assembly of those who are gathered with us that God has saved us. Think about that when we come to the Lord's table. Uh, don't let it become monotonous to you. Don't, uh, don't consider uh, how long uh, must we do this. No. Rejoice that until Christ returns, he has given us uh, visible signs that remind us that we are saved, that he will return. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. When we come and hold the bread and hold the cup, it is God's promise that what he has accomplished, yes, it has been done, and what he has said 
will be accomplished in his return is yet to be done, but we believe that it will be done because we have been saved, because Christ has risen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when we come to the Lord's table, it is a means of grace. And dear ones, may I encourage you, don't miss the Lord's Supper. Don't miss the opportunity to be a part of the wonderful proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the body and blood of Christ. Well, what else is true besides this covenant proclamation and the blessings that are involved with it? The second blessing, the second truth, if you will, is that the presence of Christ is with us at his table. Matthew 14, 22, 25 again. And brothers and sisters, there's been a, a great debate throughout the history of the church concerning the nature of the Lord's Supper. Many have argued that God grants salvific, justifying grace through the operation of the meal. Rome believes that the bread and the wine actually change, literally change into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ offered once again. Others have denied these things and have said nothing supernatural occurs at the Lord's table, but rather it is only a memorial of the sacrifice of Christ. It is nothing more than a memory. And then still there are others, and those others are us, who do not believe that the bread and cup change in any way, but who confess, however, that Christ is spiritually present with his people in a special and unique way at the table. Consider our confession, chapter 30 and verse 7. Worthy receivers on the Lord's Supper, worthy receivers, outwardly partaking in the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually, receive, and feed upon Christ crucified, and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then, not corporally or carnally, but spiritually, present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to our outer senses. Note that in Mark chapter 14, the Lord refers to the connection between the bread and his body. And then the cup and his body. Christ is not arguing for a, or making the case for a literal relation, meaning he is not literally saying, when you eat the bread, you are literally eating my flesh. Or that when you drink of the cup, you are literally drinking my literal blood. But it's also not so symbolic that there is no connection between the two, or that a connection between the two, two can't be made. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. You don't need to turn there, but write it down for your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16 declares that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we have communion or fellowship with the body and blood of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the of the blood of Christ? The bread which we bless, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul is contrasting pagan sacrifices as a participation or fellowship with demons. And he's contrasting it with the Lord's Supper as a participation or fellowship in the body and blood of Christ. And what's the point of this contrast? It is that participating in the Lord's Supper is an eating of literal bread and literal drink, but it is also at the same time a spiritual fellowship with Christ in his body and blood. So therefore, while the elements do not change, the bread and the cup, that is in the bread and the cup, there is a real promise of fellowship that we have with Christ as he is present with us in the meal. Listen to our brother uh, Sinclair Ferguson on this particular topic. He says, it is not by the church's administration or merely by activity of our memories, but through the spirit that we enjoy communion with Christ, crucified, risen, and now exalted. For Christ is not localized in the bread and the wine, meaning he is not literally in the bread and the wine, the Roman Catholic view. Nor is he absent from the supper as though our highest activity were simply remembering him. That's the memorialist view. Rather, he is known through the elements by the Spirit. There is genuine communion with Christ in the supper. Just as the Brothers and sisters, the preaching of the word is, uh, just as in the preaching of the word, Christ is present, not in the Bible locally or by believing, but by the ministry of the Spirit, he says. So also he is present in the supper, not in the bread and the wine, but by the power of the Spirit, the body and blood of the right hand of the Father, but by the power of the Spirit. We are brought into his presence as he stands among us. Think about just the word communion. 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 16 is the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia. And it is the fellowship not with the other people per se that is primarily in view, but rather it is the fellowship or communion that we have with Christ when we come to his table. And it is the effects of the gospel that are in view there. Dear ones, each time that we come in faith to the Lord's Supper, Christ is spiritually present with us in a unique way. Again, just as we have said concerning the preaching of the word, that Christ is always with us. And yet when we gather in his name and when the word of God is accurately taught and faithfully taught, Christ is especially with us. So, too, Christ is always with us. But when we come to the Lord's Supper by faith, proclaiming the message of the covenant of God fulfilled, Christ is especially with us as we commune with him, fellowship with him at his table. Now, we must be, be very careful not to think, but I don't see him. Where is he? Maybe if I saw him, then this idea of fellowshipping with him or communing with him might become more real. And here's. Here's what we might say, and then I might feel it differently. Well, again, we must remember, we must beware of our feelings, shouldn't we? Our feelings are fleeting, but God's word is solid. It's 
eternal. It's immovable and unchangeable. Uh, we are like the waves, but God is not. God is steady. God is unchanging. If we are searching for the tangible, then we need to look no further than those visible things, those visible ordinances that God has given us in the means of grace, uh, namely the Lord's Supper. A dear member asked, and I believe it was a wonderfully sincere question, uh, should I suggest to a loved one that in order to stir their affections for Christ, that they maybe watch a film like The Passion of the Christ, Again, in order to stir their affections for Christ. And I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, have seen that film. And I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, found it hard to to keep our eyes on what we were seeing portrayed there on the big screen. But may I say to you, brothers and sisters, lovingly, but also biblically, God has not given us a particular film in order to stir our affections for him. God has given us the means of grace in order to stir our affections for him. Do you want something that you can see? Do you want something that you can touch? Do you want something that you can taste in order to stir your affections for God? Well, then, dear one, God has met his people at the point of their needs. For Christ has given us the waters of baptism for our seeing and for our feeling. Christ has given us the word of God for our hearing and for our understanding. And he is there present with us as we come and hear his word or come to the waters of baptism. Christ has given us prayer for our petitions. And he has given us the Lord's Supper for our taste and for our sight and for our personal fellowship with him. Do not think for one second that rich theology and knowledge of God And love and fellowship with him, two separate things on two separate spectrums. They are on the same playing field. For when you know your Lord and you know your God, you are able to better love and fellowship with him. Some think that it is only about fellowship, but you cannot have right fellowship without a right understanding of God and yourself. We must not say, uh, we will come and we will pretend that Christ is with us. No, we come now, not pretending that Christ is with us, but believing by faith that Christ is present with us as we feast upon his body and as we drink his blood spiritually and celebrate his finished work to the glory of God. May I say to you lovingly, this is why we don't bring our little ones who don't know any of these things to the Lord's Supper. And if we would not bring them to the Lord's Supper because they don't understand these things, we should not bring them to the waters of baptism because they surely don't understand those things as well. But isn't your love for Christ and isn't your desire for Christ and isn't even the nourishment that you are receiving right now by the word of Christ heightened as you are gaining a better understanding of what it means when you come to his table? And what it means when you come to the word and when you come to baptism and next week when you come in prayer. Dear ones, we should be ever so careful about who comes to these things. Because the only blessing that they will receive 
is when they come to these things by faith and are strengthened and encouraged by their understanding of what they produce in the believer who comes to them by faith. When we come to the table, we come in fellowship with Christ by faith. And dear one, if that's the case, we dare not miss a time to fellowship with Christ at his table. Christ can come, we believe, at any moment. And we are, are hopefully, are hoping for that moment. But until then, he has given us the blessing of his table to fellowship with him until we, together, are with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Nothing should deter us from that moment of communing with him at his table. Christ has determined that this supper is uniquely his. Think about that. This meal is uniquely Christ. It belongs to Christ in a unique way. What's the difference between this meal and a meal that we might have at Chick-fil-A or in and out throughout the week? What's the, the difference between those meals and the meals that we have, the meal that we have the Lord's Supper? Well, let's just say, first of all, it's in the title. It's not Chick-fil-A's meal. It's the Lord's meal. It's not Chick-fil-A's or In-N-Out Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. It belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, he has promised to bless this meal unlike all the other meals. He has promised to meet with his people or commune with his people unlike all the other meals where he does not commune with his people. And what is the result? The result is that we are spiritually nourished as we come to the table and as the covenant promise of God is proclaimed and as we meet with Christ. Christ dispenses grace to his people. We are therefore strengthened in our faith. And may I just ask you as I am thinking about this, don't you long for the Lord's Supper? Can you... uh, Not wait for the day, and it will be soon, Lord willing, when we will be able to together come and proclaim the covenant of of redemption, the covenant of grace, the new covenant accomplished in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you looking forward to and longing for that moment when you can take the cup and take the bread and wonderfully fellowship with Christ at his table? I know that I am. I pray that you no longer, that we no longer take the the cup and take the bread haphazardly. That we no longer uh, take the bread and take the cup in a blasé manner. That we recognize all of the wonderful truths that are being proclaimed in these elements that Christ has given to his church. And thirdly, and lastly, spiritual nourishment is made available. For Christ's people. Spiritual spiritual nourishment is made available for the church. Brothers and sisters, when you come to the Lord's table, you and I are proclaiming the covenant, the promise of God fulfilled in Christ. You and I are presently fellowshipping with Christ. And finally, you and I are being nourished by Christ in his body and blood. We are being nourished physically, aren't we? Our hunger is somewhat satisfied by the bread. 
our thirst is somewhat satisfied by the cup. We are partaking of one bread. It's one bread that has been broken in many pieces. And it's been broken to show that the body of Christ was also broken for our sake. And that we are united in that one bread, that one body of Christ. Everyone does not get their own loaf of bread on the Lord's Day when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because we are not called to live individualistic lives. We are called to recognize that we are one body. If we had the Lord's Supper and we said, take your own loaf, uh, we might find people cowering, or not cowering, but, but finding some type of comfortable place in the church and just feasting upon this entire piece of bread. It's not the way that God has ordained it for his people. We take a, a piece and break it apart so that we show that we are a part of the body of Christ, that we are not alone. We are not drinking from the same cup as they once did. But we have smaller cups to represent that we are one small uh, portion of the grander body of Christ. And yet the taste that we receive is satisfying in some sense, but it always leaves us longing for more, doesn't it? And thank goodness that we long for more. We long for the day that we will be completely and totally satisfied in Christ when we dine with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Coming to the table, it's not meant for our physical satisfaction per se. It's meant for our spiritual satisfaction. It's meant for our spiritual nourishment. We are reminded in the body and blood of Christ that in him we've been made whole. That we have been given the blessing of partaking in the covenant, the blessing of the covenant, of the new covenant. And we have been joined to Christ in his body. We are refreshed as we celebrate what Christ has done. And we presently rejoice in what Christ is doing. And we look forward to what Christ will do in the consummation of all things. And as we reflect on these wonderful things, it is then that we are spiritually nourished by Christ. The various confessional or catechetical uh, statements help to bring together what Scripture teaches regarding the Lord's Supper. Specifically, uh, it is one, it is of particular value to the nourishment of the Christian who attends the Supper in faith. I'd like for you to consider briefly our Confession, chapter 14, verse, or paragraph 1, which says, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their heart. And it, it is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and the other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. I, I do appreciate our, our Baptist Catechism, uh, but I greatly appreciated the way the Heidelberg Catechism uh, describes our nourishment in the Lord's Supper. Question 75 of the Heidelberg Catechism reads, The Christ that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup and has joined therewith these promises. First, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me as I, as certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me. 
and the cup communicated to me. And further that, with his crucified body and shed blood, he himself feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life, as certainly as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, which are given me as certain tokens of the body and blood of Christ. That's wonderful. And given that the Lord's Supper is a visible proclamation, meaning that we can see it, of the covenant promises, and that it is a time of unique fellowship with Christ, the confessional and catechetical statements are right in viewing the Lord's Supper as an ordinary means of grace, whereby the people of God are nourished by God. The nourishment is a spiritual provision, wherein the faith of the believer is increased. And as you well know, God has given his people visible signs, which point to his promises within particular covenants. We talked about this a few weeks ago. At the Lord's table, the promises of the new covenant are put on full display. The covenant promises of God are proclaimed at the table. Our souls are fed and our faith is nourished. And I wonder if you experience that. When you come to the Lord's table, is your faith strengthened by the proclamation of the gospel that is proclaimed there at the table? As the bread and cup become monotonous or dull or even draining to you? Has your confidence in Christ grown each time you come to the table? The table is meant to be a means whereby you grow in your faith as you fellowship with Christ. It is mean to, meant to, to draw you closer to God in faith. It's meant to build you up and sustain you as you sojourn through this dark and gloomy world to the glorious glory that is laid up for you in heaven. Dear ones, Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It proclaims the message of God's covenant love. It is a meal wherein Christ meets with his people and uniquely fellowships with him. And by this meal, the saints of God are strengthened in their faith by God. Please, brothers and sisters, do not miss the grace that is offered to you in the Lord's Supper. Come by faith. Rejoice when you are holding the body and blood of Christ. Rejoice that he has given his body and blood for you. Rejoice that he is right now sanctifying you. And he is using particular means to do so. And one of those means is that supper, those elements that you hold in your hand. And when you partake of the Lord's Supper, rejoice. Because God is keeping his promise in that sign. He is saying, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will return for my bride. And you will be with me there for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we thank you once again for the blessing that you have given to us in your word. And also the blessing that you give to us in the means of grace, namely the Lord's Supper. We ask, Father, that as we are preparing and looking forward to the time when we will be able to meet together here, Lord, very, very soon that you would help our understanding of this supper be greater. And therefore, our time in partaking of this sacramental ordinance be more nourishing and more fulfilling to our souls.
We thank you, God, that by grace you have saved us. We thank you that by grace you are sustaining us. And by grace you will bring us home. We ask and thank you for all of these things, for Christ's sake and for the good of your people. Amen. May I read to you in closing our benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.